The Old Testament text is the 82nd Psalm. God has placed, or has taken his place, I should say. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I imagine that uh, some of you, if not all of you, when you read the opening of that psalm, say, what in the world is going on? We have this uh, reference to the gods. Let me read it for you once again and uh, give you something to think about here. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. This is a difficult passage, but one of the things I like to do is think about difficult passages because oftentimes with difficult passages, there's a conceptual block that needs to be removed. And when that conceptual block is removed, it's a kind of door that opens to our understanding and really can change the way you think about yourself and the world and everything about your life. And this is one of those passages. We see something that on the surface just doesn't seem to kind of jive or jibe with stuff that we know to be true that we're taught about in the rest of the scriptures. And that's uh, this reference to the gods. God takes his place in the divine council. We see that uh, in verse 1. Aren't we monotheists, right? Mono, one, theist, uh, from theos, for God, There's only one God. Aren't we believers uh, in that truth? Yes, we are, just so you know, (laughs) in case you're beginning to wonder whether or not pastor has gone heretical. Uh, We are. We do believe that there is one God, the true God. Now, um, some of you might be thinking about the Trinity at this point. What about the Trinity? Does this maybe open the door to this particular passage in terms of our understanding? No, it, it actually doesn't. When we think about the Trinity, we think about one essence, uh, one God, who is three persons. There is only one God, but there are three persons in the Godhead, and it's something that we can't really boil down in such a way that we can get a firm grasp on it intellectually. One of the things to think about when it comes to knowledge is this. There are truths that get a hold of you, and then there are truths that you get a hold of. And it's an important distinction. We live in a world that likes truths that you can get a hold of because you can use them for your own ends, do things with them to kind of further your own interests. But the truths that get a hold of you put you into the service of the truth. And in so doing, you become the servant of someone else's end. And then, of course, when we think about truth, the capital T, we're talking about God's own truth. So when God's truth gets a hold of us, he puts us to work. When we get a hold of truths with the lower case, we put those truths to work. And that is the reason why, essentially, 
Uh, a lot of folks don't want to hear about truths with a capital T. They want to be in charge. And I'll get to, more, to that a little bit more later. And we're all that way. But who are these gods? Who's, who is being referred to here? Now, there was a book that came out a few years back entitled The Unseen Realm by a fellow named Michael Heiser. And it's sold a lot of uh, copies. And I've read it. And I think it's got some good things to say. But in that book, he proposes that what we're talking about here when he's referring to this passage or this psalm talks about the gods, is we're referring to angelic beings. And these angelic beings uh, have a great deal of authority, and they're accountable to God. And uh, what we have with regard to the divine council is more or less sort of like a, a board meeting in which the chairman of the board is taking the board members to task and saying, what are you guys doing? This is not the way things should be done. So these are creatures. These gods with a lowercase g are creatures. But we have something that the Lord said that I think is uh, something we can't forget and can't ignore that uh, puts us uh, in the spotlight. The Lord is addressing the people who object to him referring to himself as God's son, and he says, hey, just think about the 82nd Psalm. And he refers to uh, that, that passage when he says to them, he called them gods. This is in John chapter 10, verse 35. We read that a little earlier. He called them gods to whom the word of God came. So there was something about the, 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 the effect of the word of God upon those who were called by the name, who, uh, because of that, because of the influence of that word, in some sense are like God because they know things that they should know as God's representatives. So that's something also to keep in mind. Now, when it comes to this, um, what should we take away from this? What can this mean for us? Um, Let me put it this way. If you get this right, uh, all is well. But if you get this wrong, all is hell. And it's important to get this right. I think it's important at this point to note that there is a way of understanding this passage that is heretical, and it's the way the Mormons think about it. So in Mormon theology, there's sort of a, a quip, sort of a, sort of a way of putting things that kind of summarizes Mormon teaching. It's important for you to know about, and it goes like this. As God was, so we are. As God is, so we will be. In other words, the God that Mormons worship is an embodied God in a a way that Christians do not believe to be the case. We do not believe that God is sort of on sort of a self-improvement trajectory and that we're just kind of following him along the way. There is a truth that because we are united to God in Christ through the work of God's spirit and the sanctification process that is going on in our lives, we're becoming more and more like God. But there's no sense in which God was embodied like you and me at some point in the past. And that's what Mormons actually believe. So when those well-dressed guys come to your door and knock, you know, with their ties and all that kind of stuff, keep that in mind. That's just one of the things they're trying to talk you into. There's a whole other set of things as well. But anyway, that's something to keep in mind. If that isn't the case, if the Mormon approach to understanding the relationship between the human and the divine is in error, how should we think about ourselves in relationship to this? Well, we're told in Scripture that we are God's images. 
that we are made in the image and likeness of God. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, with regard to the creation, male and female, we are made in God's image. And so in some sense, when you see another person, in some sense, that person is supposed to remind you of God. This is, by the way, one of the things that I think it's worth keeping in mind when you're interacting with atheists. When you talk to an atheist, uh, and perhaps uh, that was you at some point in your life, and they ask for the proof, give me a proof for the existence of God, well, the thing to keep in mind is we were supposed to be the proof. In other words, we were supposed to be the, the argument, the slam dunk, you can't doubt the truth of what is being said kind of argument. Before the fall, before sin corrupted our natures, we were chips off the old block. People you could look at and say, there's a God. There's no way that something like you could exist if there were not. Now, because we are fallen and because through us evil is performed, we don't bring God to mind all the time, do we? We look at each other and we say, well, you're the... You're the last thing I would think of when I think of God. Or you don't give me any reason to believe in God because of the way you are. Anyway, so that's in the background here. Now, what does it mean to be made in God's image? Does it just mean that we have certain moral and uh, sort of intellectual capacities that make it possible for us to behave in a godlike way in the world? I think that's part of the story. But if you understand it within the framework of the ancient Near East, it worked this way. A regent, a representative, was the image of the one who sent him or her. Now, when we think about, say, an ambassador for the, for the United States, say, the United Nations, that person represents us. That person is the image, you could say, of the American people in that court. And that's what the United Nations is. It's a kind of court. Now, that's the thing to keep in mind. So we're regents. We're called to be regents, and we're called to exercise dominion. That's the thing that follows a couple of verses later when you read the story about the creation of Adam and Eve and them being made in the image of God. They're to exercise dominion in the world employing the faculties that they've been entrusted with in a way that honors God and represents him and reflects his will. And the standard that is to be referred to when it comes to this work of exercising dominion in the world is God's will, God's law. So when we are conformed to God's will, when we exercise judgment in a way that appeals to God's standards, we are his regents, we are his representatives. In other words, when people see us and hear us, we should bring to mind when they see us and hear us, we should bring to mind the one who sent us as his regents. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. So we're judges. That's the essential core of what it means to be a human being. We're a judge we're a judge that's an, it's a sent to exercise justice and judgment by the standard that we're given, and that standard is God's will. Now, this brings to mind probably the most misused verse in the Bible. I'm thinking, of course, of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, actually the first verse. You know the one I'm thinking about. This is the teenager's favorite verse. 
Let me just read it for you, and uh, I think you'll know what I'm getting at. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, the reason that's the teenager's favorite verse in the Bible, their memory verse, is because any time a parent says, you know, those friends you're hanging out with are kind of shady. I think you should probably spend you know, less time with them and, and meet some other people. This is the verse that comes to mind for your typical teenager. Judge not that you be not judged. There. I told you, I'm quoting scripture. You are guilty of being judgmental. You judgmental person, you. Stop that. Anyway, uh, is that really the best way to understand that verse? There's really no getting away from judging. And I'd like to think with you a little bit about this. Every day, in every way, we're judging and evaluating people and the circumstances we find ourselves in. And this faculty that we've been given to do this is from God and reflects God's own capacity to judge. So we judge everything. We judge, you know, what's the best item of clothing to wear today when we look at what we have in our closets. We judge uh, what is worth eating and what's not worth eating. I remember one time I was, this is kind of interesting. Sometimes we're not terribly confident in our ability to make good judgments. I remember one time I was in a, I think it was like a 7-Eleven and there was this girl who was with a bunch of her friends, and she asked them what she should eat. And I thought to myself, I would never ask my friends what I should eat. This is definitely a girl thing. Anyway, so uh, we, you know, exercise judgment when we think about what we should. We think about, you know, our friends, who we should befriend and who should friend, you know, we'd like to be friends with. We're exercising judgment when we do that. Obviously, when it comes to the question of who should I marry, we exercise judgment. We want to make good judgments. We want to be wise when it comes to these just fundamental questions that we have to answer when it comes to how to live our lives. But how should we go about this you know, work of judging? You know, how should we exercise judgment? Well, our judgment needs to be informed. We're told that, uh, that we should exercise wisdom, divine wisdom when we do this, and that that wisdom begins with something. So uh, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, uh, reads this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That's where we begin. When we want to exercise good judgment in the course of our lives, we look to the Lord. We fear Him, which means we reverence Him, and He is able to give us the insight we need. Now, what does... Jesus mean when he says we shouldn't judge in this passage from the Sermon on the Mount? Let's take another look at that, and I think you'll see what uh, uh, it gets left out, and it's essentially what everything that follows. <laughs> so if you look at that passage, beginning with verse 1, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is something that's worth keeping in mind. Mercy is the exercise of judgment. When we show mercy, what we're doing is we're actually extending grace to someone else. And in effect, we're in a sense kind of paying the debt for them. And if we want to be treated in the same way, that's what Jesus is getting at. Be merciful. Judge not that you be not judged, is not uh, sort of a, 
a, you know, a sort of a, a kind of a, I guess, a license to do a, whatever you'd like and uh, not get called into account for it. It's, it has to do more with the fact that you shouldn't be a, a fussy, nitpicking, judgmental, pedantic person if you don't want to be subject to fussy, nitpicking, pedantic uh, judgment. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, after this, hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly, and then you'll be able to judge correctly when it comes to other people. So turn the eye of uh, you know, your evaluative judgment back on yourself. Judge yourself first. And when you do that, then you're in a better position to judge other people. Now, of course, if you are really thorough in judging yourself, um, what do you find? A lot of things that could be improved. And with that in mind, when you treat other people uh, to the blessings of your critical judgment, (laughs) uh, you are able to approach them in a way that you would have preferred to be approached yourself or would prefer to be approached yourself. So even in the exercise of mercy, you're, performing a, you're exercising judgment. Now, in this passage, we see that those creatures who have been given the task of exercising judgment are called to task. Look at verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? By the way, the word salah just means pause or break. Uh, Often, uh, when commentators refer to it in uh, commentaries on the Bible, they think that there's a kind of musical interlude that's supposed to uh, occur at this particular point. Um, So it's like a a reference or or it's like instructions to the the choir or to the musical accompaniment. In case you ever wonder, what is salah uh, referring to? So there's there's an interlude at this point. Then we're told in verse 3, give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So what uh, these gods are supposed to do is exercise justice and judgment in a way that is impartial. They're not supposed to apply the law in a way that favors certain groups of people, and in this case, those who are well off. Um, Instead, justice should be exercised in a way that serves the the needs and the interests of the weak and the fatherless so that their uh, rights are uh, maintained and defended. Now, Partiality can work the other way. This is not referred to in this passage, but it's implied. Partiality is something that can be, can be uh, employed in a way that serves uh, inappropriately the needs of the weak. So you can be partial to the, to the rich, and that's easy to understand, but you can also be partial to those who are not wealth off, well off, partial to people who are uh, poor. In fact, there are a couple of passages of Scripture I'd like to note at this point. Uh, Let me take you to uh, the first of those, which is uh, is Exodus chapter 23, verses 2 and 3. And there, 
uh, it reads, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to the poor in his lawsuit. Now, another place where we're told the same, essentially the same thing is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. And that reads, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Do you see what this implies? This implies that you and I as human beings have the capacity to be impartial, to be able, we, we have the capacity to exercise judgment in an even-handed way, not favoring the well-off or the poor. There's something that, there's a term that's uh, kind of thrown around in certain progressive circles. Um, The term is the preferential option for the poor. Have you ever heard that term? It's used by liberation theologians. Liberation theologians were essentially people who took Karl Marx and baptized him. They were popular in South America and Central America back in the 80s and 70s and so forth. Leonardo Boff, uh, Paulo Freire, those are a couple of names that get associated with, the, with those guys. But what happens is that the, these folks miss this uh, important insight, and that is God's law is to be equally applied to everyone, no matter you know, their kind of situation they find themselves in or where they are in a society. Wealthy, poor, doesn't matter. God's law is the same for everyone and it should be applied in an impartial way to everyone. Now, is that easy to do? Of course not. But is it the right thing to do? Of course. Although, there are some folks who maybe don't agree. But according to Scripture, that's the way it's supposed to work. Now, we're also told that uh, the folks who are a part of this divine council, these gods themselves will be judged. We see that in verse 6, 7, and 8. And there we're told, I said you were gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. In other words, these gods are under the judgment of God and uh, are accountable to God. And when they are wicked, they are subject to this curse from God. This should bring to mind something that uh, we don't like to think about, and that's that unpleasant episode in the Garden of Eden. There we see uh, something referred to as the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. And we're told in Scripture that that Adam and Eve were uh, informed that if if they were to sin and eat of the fruit of that tree, that they would die. One of the things that's interesting, though, when you think about that particular episode is what was it that appealed to them? What makes the, the, the desire for knowledge so appealing? And is there any sense in which that knowledge still is appealing to us today? There's a thinker that was important in the 17th century by the name of Francis Bacon. I don't know if you're familiar with Francis Bacon. Uh, Francis Bacon sometimes is uh, attributed with saying knowledge is power. You might have heard that. Knowledge is power, Francis Bacon. There's some connection here. 
the reason why the, the, the lust for knowledge is so strong in our society is because it, it provides a kind of, well, power that can give us a sense of being something more than we are, creatures that are made by God and accountable to him, almost as though we're gods in you know, our own eyes. And this, by the way, is the nature of the temptation in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what the serpent says to Eve when he's tempting her? He says to her, and this is a paraphrase, the reason why God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit of the tree is because your eyes will be open and you'll be knowledgeable and you'll be just like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. In other words, you will be a God. So this quest to self-divinize, this quest to become a God ourselves is something that characterizes human beings and has always been the case. This is just the way things are with us. We're kind of messed up this way. Now, in the contemporary situation that we find ourselves in, this has taken some interesting twists and turns. Are you familiar with the transhumanist movement? Transhumanists, transhumanists believe that we can transcend our humanity and through a mean, sort of through knowledge and kind of some engineering, we can divinize ourselves. We can become immortal, literally. They, they literally think that our, our mortality is a, is a kind of an engineering problem that we can kind of address and get beyond. Now, naturally, only extremely wealthy people will ever be able to do this, but uh, this is the quest. And people like Ray Kurzweil, who's a big deal at Google, they're behind this. And it's, it's a much broader and sort of pervasive way of thinking, uh, particularly in uh, high-tech circles than you might suppose. I read a remarkable article here about a year ago. It came out in June of 2022 in The Guardian, of all places, which is the French, I'm not French, British or English uh, newspaper, kind of a, kind of a left wing. Uh, but uh, there was an article entitled, Beyond Our Ape-Brained Meat Sacks, that's nice to say, can transhumanism save our species? It was written by uh, a woman named Elise Bohan. And uh, here's a quote from the article. When Bohan was a PhD student, she gave her first big paper at a conference. Afterwards, a biologist came up to her and congratulated her on her work. Then he looked at me in the eye. This is uh, Bohan speaking. Then he looked me in the eye and whispered to me, we're building God, you know. And she chuckled. I looked back at him and I said, yeah, I know. This is the cutting edge today in Silicon Valley and Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is what they're up to. Now, we have an episode uh, in the book of Genesis uh, called the Tower of Babel incident. I don't know if you recall that little episode. But in that episode, we have kind of transhumanism 1.0. And in that episode, what you have is a bunch of people who get together and they say, let us build a tower into the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves and we won't be scattered over the face of the earth. Now, that tower, what was that about? It was, you know, there are different ways to think about it. Uh, Some people, when they think about it, say, well, this is what, you know, the Israelites thought of the ziggurats that were, you know, built throughout that part of the world. Um, And they were more or less lampooning the, the effort. Uh, but uh, one of the ways of thinking about it was this was a ladder that ascended into heaven that would be a means for bringing God down to earth or the gods down to earth, 
Or you could think of it as this kind of siege engine where humanity is making an assault on the heavenly realm. And what happens in the story is the Lord comes down to check it out. This is one of those moments in Scripture that, you know, when you think about it, it kind of reminds you of some maybe episode in your childhood. Like when your father, you know, yells down into the basement when you're torturing your little sister or your brother or little brother and says, you better not let, make me come down there. Because you know what's going to happen if he comes down there and sees you doing that. It's going to be judgment day. And that's what happens. Whenever the Lord says, I'm coming down to check out what's going on, it's kind of like judgment day. And what does the Lord do when the Lord shows up? He says a couple of things that are remarkable. First thing is this. When he saw what they were up to, and of course we're talking analogically here, not literally, but when he saw what they're up to, he says, if this is what they do, when they all speak the same language and are unified politically, nothing will be impossible for them because, after all, they're made in the image of God. And then the Lord pronounces judgment. And how does the Lord judge them? In this subtle, ingenious way. He confuses their language. They can't understand each other. They can't cooperate anymore. And they scatter. And they made a name for themselves. Babel. <laughs> That's the name we remember them by today. And they are scattered over the face of the earth. And that's us. The name, of course, the con- or I should say, the curse is confusion. Because they re- did not fear the Lord. Instead, they took it upon themselves to acquire knowledge that would make a name for them, serve their own interest and glory, rather than serve the Lord and be an an accurate representation of his interests and his will in the world. The fear of the Lord, as I noted earlier, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Never fear, the Lord will judge. If you have ever wondered when you look at the news and you see things kind of getting crazier by the day, how will this all play out? How will it all shake out? Well, it's being shaken out right now. If you look at this, uh, again, this, uh, this psalm, and you look at the fifth verse, did you notice that reference to the foundations being shaken? Let me just read that verse for you again. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. In other words, the situation that we find ourselves in is we think we know things and we don't actually know what we think we know. We think our knowledge is understanding, but in fact we are walking around in darkness and the foundations of our society, the foundations of our civilization, the foundations of our country, The foundations of our way of life are being shaken right now. Can you feel it? Can you feel that when you watch the news, when you see the insanity? Can you you note it when you can't even use just simple, straightforward speech without being condemned in public? That's the kind of confusion that we see sort of swirling in our society today. We are under God's judgment. Where do we need to go? Well, we need to go to the Lord and ask him to deliver us. We need to go to the Lord and ask him to to help us 
to understand and help us to fear him the way we should. Because in the end, all those nations that were scattered over the face of the earth, they're all his possession. We're told that the very, uh, at the very end of this psalm, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. That's our hope. That's the, that's the good news and the bad news, you could say. It's bad news if you're on the wrong side of the Lord's judgment seat. Or, but it's good news for those who know him and fear him. And that's what we ought to be praying for when we see that insanity in the news every day. When we think about maybe the situations that we maybe are dealing with in our own homes with the confusion and the craziness going on all around us and our extended families and so forth, we should go to the Lord and say to the Lord, Lord, we need you to exercise judgment because we've obviously messed this up bad. We need you to set it right. And the Lord will. And it's really not even a question of whether or not he will. The question is more when. Early Christians would say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that was the appeal that they were making to the Lord, saying, put this to an end. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Set things right, because we need you to do that, because we can't do it ourselves. We're like that kid. You know, most of you can relate to this. When your children are small, they know how to make a mess, but they don't know how to clean it up. We're kind of like that as the human race. We know how to make a mess and we don't know how to clean it up. We need God to clean it up for us. The good news is he has in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see your glory and see how you are at work in the world, even through us, even though we don't feel very competent in the work that we have been given to do when it comes to judging uh, just how to proceed in terms of living our own lives at times. Help us look to you and your word to find our orientation and to know how to go about this. And help us, Lord, to glorify you and represent you well as your people. Help us to be chips off the old block, images of our Father in heaven. And we pray, Lord, that you will do what only you can do for our world as well, to judge it. Because we know that when you judge things, you set things right. We pray that you'll do this For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.